is an important first step. All of our citizens can live a better quality of life. Make them law-abiding citizens that they want to be. That need certain kinds of help to get better. Marijuana to the many, many people who are eager for cannabis. Hey everybody, hope you're doing great. Welcome to Weed the People, North Carolina's premier podcast that follows the movement to legalize cannabis and psychedelics in this great state we call home. My name's Chris Suttle. I'm going to be your host for every episode of this podcast. And for our pilot episode, I decided to do something a little different and give you guys a peek behind the curtain as to how this whole movement started. For those of you that have been with me from the beginning, you know this story. For those of you that are brand new listeners, a lot of what I did in the beginning of what has become the Changes Coming movement in North Carolina was done in my car in between delivering food for Uber Eats, Postmates, Instacart work, whatever I could find. So you'll have to forgive me for the audio on this first episode because this interview was done with a call recorder app on my iPhone in between dropping off deliveries. But it was a pleasure to speak with Greg Doucette, one of the most well-known criminal defense attorneys here in North Carolina. And there's a lot of good information in this episode, despite the audio that we're dealing with. Greg and I talk about a lot. We learned, we laughed, we joked together. But most importantly, it's a great look at the world that we can expect here in North Carolina once cannabis finally is recognized as the medicine it is and it is finally legalized either medicinally recreationally or both which i doubt will happen at the same time but hey at least that means i've got job security for the next six years so sit back roll it up if you got it smoke them if you brought them and enjoy this first pilot episode of weed the people and be sure to stick around to the end because we've got some really big announcements coming your way and we hope you're going to join us next week as well all right thank you so much for joining us today and uh you know, depending on, like, considering the topics that we're talking about and my extracurricular activities from time to time. So, I mean, how, how does this work? If I get busted after this interview, do I just give them your name? <laughs> First, don't say anything to the cops and tell them my <laughs> lawyer told me not to talk to you. And then go ahead and uh, give them my name. Gotcha. And I'm, uh, you know, asking for a friend. Do you guys have, like, a frequent punch card system? Is it, like, you know, nine misdemeanors, your 10 felonies free? <laughs> Well, believe it or not, it typically goes in reverse. You're, you'll have cheaper prices the first few times you're charged. Once you hit, like, the sixth or seventh possession, I have to start increasing the rate to try and discourage you from uh, continuing to get busted. you got to be smarter about breaking the law. <laughs> All right, so we're not only educating about reform laws, but we're, you know, just make sure that we got to educate the people that until those laws kick in to be smarter than they are now. Yeah, that's work smarter than <laughs> Right. Awesome. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Greg, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, and, and even more so for agreeing to this interview. Uh, I wanted to give our listeners that are not aware of who you are uh, a chance. This, we are speaking today with uh, Greg Doucette, uh, one of the more known criminal defense attorneys here in North Carolina, and I know the way that I was introduced to you was actually through my wife, because she's been following you ever since uh, George Floyd came up in the news, and she's just been astounded, not, by your, not just by your dedication to reposting and commenting on any civil injustice that you've seen since then, 
whether it's large, national, regional, small town, and she's also always commented on how every comment you make, even if you don't agree with someone, carries with it that like little seed of hope that just tells everyone, calm down, play video games if you Everything have to. will be fine. Be okay. <laughs> I try to be an optimist, man. It's uh, Some days are easier than others, but, you know... One of my clients, believe it or not, who used to uh, get busted for weed, one of the things he said was, how can you be a businessman if you don't have hope? And um, I, I try to take that philosophy to heart. That is, well, yeah, that is that is a good philosophy to have, especially in times like this. And I wanted, I wanted to ask you, while we're, uh, you know, just kind of getting to know you here, what what made you choose criminal defense law? Like out of all the different categories <laughs> that you go into, like was it you know was it just the challenge aspect of it, or was there did, did something happen kind of along your career to get where you are now that made you focus on that you know one fraction of it? It, it kind of happened by accident. So I went to law school planning to become a patent attorney. My undergraduate degree is actually in computer science, so I was a I was a nerd in undergrad. And I figured, given that I had this tech background, you know, software patents are, are super lucrative and everything else, it was something that I thought I would be able to do well. Then a couple things happened. One, uh, I don't know if anyone has ever taken a patent class in law school, but patents are terrible as far my, as... I bought a Monopoly game once to help a friend of mine train to pass the bar. That's about as familiar as I am with the different tests that people have to take. I just remember it was his birthday. <laughs> all kicked in to buy this like really overpriced Monopoly set that was supposed to help him become a lawyer. Right, right. Well, so what you've got, to be a regular lawyer, you have to pass an ethics test, believe it or not. Then you have to pass the bar exam nationally, the multi-state bar exam. And then usually there is a state-specific portion. So for North Carolina, you had 12 essays on North Carolina-specific law. And then the national law was on multiple choice. But to do a, a, be a patent lawyer, to actually file patents with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, you have to have a degree in a science-related field, and you have to take what is called the patent bar, which is a test of the Patent and Trademark Office procedures. Not terribly difficult. It's not easy, but it's not hard. But then once you're there, once you are, in fact, a patent lawyer, going through the process of describing a patent, finding what we call prior art, you know, people who have used similar stuff in the past that becomes the baseline for your patent, which is a, a super common thing in computer science since everyone is building off of everyone else's stuff. Uh, it really was just mind-numbing. I hated it. I have all the respect in the world for patent lawyers. I don't know how they can do it without wanting to gouge their eyes out with a spork at some point. So that was the first piece. I realized I could not do patent law without hating my life. And then I also got active in trial advocacy. So, you know, in undergrad, there's uh, football teams, basketball teams. Those are the big sports that people in college like to talk about. In law school, it's the same type of concept, except it's the moot court board, which is mock appellate practice, and then the trial advocacy board, which is mock trial team stuff. And then you have the law review, which is for, like, the super smart, nerdy kids that like to write. So I got involved in the trial litigation, you know, that trial advocacy competitions that we had uh, in between the different law schools, and I really enjoyed it. So when I finally graduated from law school, 
set up my own practice. I knew I wanted to be in the courtroom. Had no interest in criminal law. It was not something I was going to do. I had actually interned in the Durham County District Attorney's Office as a third-year law student to be a prosecutor. And after about a month or so, realized that I really, really, really hated it. I just did not have that prosecutorial instinct that, that you typically need. So I didn't want to have anything to do with criminal law. I marketed myself as doing business litigation because I had a lot of experience dealing with businesses, and I like to be in the courtroom. So that was a focus, business litigation. Then in addition to that, wanted to do what I had marketed as higher education law. So I knew a lot about the university system, uh, campus due process, educational rights, figured that I could be a, a niche lawyer dealing with that sort of thing because there are not many lawyers that do it. So I had marketed myself as a higher education attorney. And what happened was that out of my first six or seven what I would call higher education clients, college students who came to hire me for something, uh, all of them except for one were in fact charged with crimes. So one of them was a young lady who was 20 years old and had picked up her fourth underage drinking ticket. One of them was a student who was actually growing marijuana in his dorm room, which is a terrible idea. If any of you are thinking of doing that, don't grow weed in an apartment or a dorm. Uh, one of them was a lady who had you know, stolen something from Walmart and was being prosecuted. So after you know, a few months of calling myself a higher education lawyer, but all of the higher education clients are, in fact, criminal defense things, I decided that I was just going to go ahead and call myself a criminal defense lawyer and, and be done with the pretense, if that makes sense. No, it, it does. Now, uh, I, wanted, I wanted to ask, are you part of the uh, first-timers club when it comes to the bar exam, or do you have the honor of being you know, listed amongst other great memorable people that passed it on the second time? <laughs> so in my case, I passed it the first time. Okay. I, uh, I, had a, I had a mental breakdown in the middle of it because you realize as you get to two or three weeks out that you still don't really get it. Um, but in my case... I mostly holed up in my apartment, spoke to no one, neglected my girlfriend, neglected my dog. He only got walked twice a day, and then beyond that, I didn't pay him any attention. And I managed to pass on the first try. Hey, you know, it's, it, it sounds like the sacrifices, you know, the reward outweighed the sacrifices that needed to be made, but I'm sure in your dog's eyes that wasn't the case. I know it wouldn't be the case. <laughs> right. She would not be happy if those were the only walks that she got during the day. People always laugh about, you know, why I talk about my dog so much and how, like, my Twitter profile is my dog's face. And it's, it's one of those things where, you know, until marijuana is legal in North Carolina, because of my own criminal past and connections that I've had over the years to different assets of the marijuana industry, let's put it that way, you know, I'm not comfortable showing my face in public. So I just took a picture of my dog one day being goofy, and I'm like, who could say no to legal weed to that face? I'm just going to use her profile. <laughs> My image from now on. <laughs> I want to ask, in, regards to, in regards to criminal, you know, defense, as far as a, not criminal defense, criminal law, like, how do you balance? Obviously, we all have a job. You know, we, we don't have to agree with, you know, everything that's on the menu to still be a server at Chili's. It's, you know, you, you make sacrifices to bring home the paycheck at the end of the day. But just out of my own personal curiosity, honestly, like, how do you balance your own conscience against an oath to a profession, you know, such as being a criminal defense attorney? Right. It, it's easier than you would think. And part of that is 
I enjoy fighting the government. Like it's something that I get a kick out of. My my political views tend to be conservative. I'm sure it's probably a shock to some of your listeners. I had been a lifelong Republican since you know George H. W. Bush ran, and I was in elementary school voting for him as part of the kids' vote thing, all the way up until 2016. I've always been philosophically a conservative, and part of that is. You know, the government does a lot of things that it should not do and does them to great excess. So for something like weed, for example, I don't really think it's the government's business to be spending time and money prosecuting people for having a joint in the car or for having, you know, some bud in the house and the smell happens to go outside the front door or any other number of situations where people have been prosecuted. Not only does the government do that, they do it excessively. They hire police solely to patrol areas where they think it's going to lead to more people they can charge. They then punish you for it without ever convicting you. So your arrest becomes a public record. Your mugshot is out in public. It's on Google. People can find you. They end up forcing you to either hire an attorney or have a public defender at $55 an hour or represent yourself when you don't know what you're doing and you're going to get convicted. Then if you get convicted, that becomes part of your permanent record that's going to bite you in the rear any time you apply for a job or an apartment or any of a whole number of things. And then on top of that, they're going to charge you a minimum of $180 in court costs, $250 for a uh, drug abuse program to make sure that you don't have an addiction problem. That's not the type of money that people typically have laying around. You know, Even people who can afford to buy weed can't necessarily afford $500 in court costs and program fees. So dealing with that aspect of it, to me, is very easy. I don't think the government should be doing this. The fact that they're doing it to such an excess makes it even worse. So having someone come into my office and say, hey, by the way, I smoke. I got arrested. Will you defend me? I'm like, hell yes, sign me up. That's awesome, man. We, I, I wish there were more people with your talent that still you know, had that same outlook in regards to the topic of marijuana because I know there have been – there was a, not giving away too much or incriminating myself, there was a traffic stop that was a legitimate reason to pull me over because it was my mistake. I was, you know, coming off the end of the new breach shift. I made a right turn in a very unlit part, you know, in a very unlit new part of the road in Carborough and accidentally ended up turning the wrong way to an interstate off-ramp I was able to avoid all the vehicles, but as soon as I realized that I had like missed my right turn by 10 feet, I saw that one of the cars that pulled up to the stoplight happened to be a sheriff. <laughs> and we just kind of had that eye lock moment as I just slowly. Just <laughs> but, you know, I, I wondered in that moment, and this leads me into my next question with you actually is, you know, I, we live in a world where I had to sit there and think for a second, there's marijuana in the car right now. It's not a lot. And I know that it smells. I'm not high. I haven't been smoking today, but it's in my possession. I know I'm in trouble for what I just did. Nine times out of ten, there's no street light there. It's a newer off-ramp. I didn't hurt anyone. I was well out of the way of other vehicles. Foggy night, rainy. You know, there's a million reasons that I would have been given a warning. But because I had, you know, the smell was there and I knew that I had it, Obviously, that made me a little bit more anxious than I would normally be, and I dropped my license as the officer was coming up to the car. So I'm, like, you know, rooting around under the seat trying to find it, and so you can imagine what that looks like. But right. I have to wonder at that moment, is the only reason that, they, that 
she took the marijuana and gave me a ticket for, you know, reckless driving that wasn't even, like, one of the choices. She had to fill in, like, line 16 and handwrite it. Is The only reason that that happened to me is because, you know, I am a white male in my 40s. Do you see that with your clients? Like, you know, you don't want to just take a look at someone as they, you know, come into your office and go, hey, I got busted for smoking pot, and you know that there's going to be, like, a million other conversations you're about to have with this person. But I have to remember right. that. You know, I sat there, I'm like, would this have been a completely different traffic stop had I been, you know, an African-American or had I been a minority of any color? Oh, yeah, you would have been taken in, and in addition to being charged with reckless driving, you would have been charged with possession of marijuana as well, fingerprinted, mugshot, everything else. You, you know, the... I mean, not an ounce. Repeat was, that? Sorry. Sorry, I said ounce. I misspoke. It was like half a nugget, to be honest. So maybe uh, <laughs> a very, like, not measurable amount. Let's say that. Right. It really depends on, in part, on the cop, in part, on the sheriff, in part, on the district attorney. But generally, in North Carolina, it doesn't matter how much you have, you're going to get prosecuted for it, with a few exceptions. So for right. we, what we do is we break down our weed charges into three different tiers. You have possession of anything at all that's less than half an ounce, and then you have between a half and one and a half ounces, and then you have everything above one and a half ounces. And so back when I started practice, Durham was horrible about going out of its way to prosecute anybody for anything. I once represented a cop who had actually been pulled over supposedly because his car resembled a car that had been used in a drive-by. It was a completely bogus stop. The officer claims to have smelled weed. Bear in mind, again, my guy's a police officer. He's drug tested regularly. He doesn't smoke because he gets fired if he did. Has him step out of the car based on a pretext of the odor, searches the car, finds his police gear in the trunk, confirms that he is in fact a police officer, but finds a pill bottle under the passenger seat that he then opens without a warrant and claims it smells like weed. There must have been weed in here. I'm going to charge you for the residue. And charged my guy with possession of less than half an ounce of marijuana based on supposed residue in a passenger side pill bottle. My guy gets fired, hires me. We end up nearly a year later. The pill bottle got tested, and the residue wasn't weed. It was Percocet because my client had carpal tunnel at some point, and that was part of his prescription, and he didn't know the pill bottle was even in there. The particular police officer has long since been fired. But the fact is you would have that type of stuff happen all the time where police were going out of their way to put people into the system just for the sake of putting them into the system, knowing that nine cases out of ten, there's going to be a plea deal of some kind, court costs assessed, and a chunk of that money goes back to the police department that made the arrest. Now, that's not how Durham is anymore. We had a new election in 2018, a new district attorney, and part of the new DA's philosophy is that we're just not going to prosecute anything that's less than half an ounce. So those citations have gone down because all of them have been getting dismissed. It's no longer, you know, it doesn't make monetary sense for police to keep issuing those tickets knowing they're not going to actually get any money out of anybody from it. But it's, it's big business in North Carolina. You know, you look at the top 15 charges – Every single ticket issued, all 100 counties, put them into a database. Out of your top 10, eight of them are going to be traffic offenses. The police rely on traffic stops to search for contraband. Number eight, I think, is misdemeanor assault, if I remember correctly. 
Number 10 is possession of drug paraphernalia. You get down to number 15, and that's baby weed, so weed less than half an ounce. Out of those top 15 charges, mostly traffic stuff, two of them that are drug-related, you're talking millions of dollars a year. Wake County, Mecklenburg, Guilford, New Hanover, Durham, Forsyth, the amount of money they used to generate from court costs just prosecuting traffic tickets and weed charges was enough to bankroll the entire judiciary. You could pay for all the DAs, all the judges, all the clerks in all 100 counties just based off of the volume of those charges because we issued so many citations. So in your particular case, you were going to get stopped regardless because what? by reckless driving, that's a minimum $188 you're going to get assessed plus however much extra money you have to pay in car insurance plus whatever the government can take in taxes off of that insurance company. But had you been someone that looked even remotely suspicious, and I'm putting that in air quotes because it tends to be anyone who looks poor or nervous or black, you would have been searched, they would have found the weed, and they would have arrested you for it. It wouldn't have been, oh, just give me the weed and we'll let this go. I'll just charge you with the reckless driving. It's, oh, no, I'm going to charge you for the weed as well. Make sure you're booked, fingerprinted perpetually in the system so that if you ever get found with weed again, we can rely on the fact that you're a chronic weed user and try and pressure you into a plea next time. That is, Sorry for the open-ended rant. I just the, that, the, the that, oh, I, no, I really appreciate it. It's just that moment of silence on my end wasn't just processing my own situation, but just the wealth of knowledge in that statement and the powerfulness of that statement. I, I think the fact that those words, in the way you just described it, have not been heard by a number of our listeners. You know, it's it, it's conversations like this that we're trying to have with more people to re-educate not just the you know state legislatures but also just the general public about you know cannabis you know i mean the only the only part of cannabis culture that i have not been able to kind of connect with right now is i have unfortunately found out through trial and error on my part that none of the songs i love from the 90s and cannabis culture hold up today like, I, spent 20 <laughs> minutes, I spent 20 minutes trying to find like theme music for the intro to this and I'm like oh man I cannot play more than like 10 seconds of 45 and two zigzags this is not going to work <laughs> so, and I'm not trying to pivot too much but you know just trying to keep it light but it's you know it that example actually does play to a larger issue where it's like there is a preconceived notion about cannabis culture not just music, but like music, style of clothing, habits, the type of cars people drive. And I feel like that kind of, you know, that stereotypical knowledge that isn't based in fact, it's just based in, you know, really bad examples of poor police work has been kind of the Bible that most of our law enforcement officials have followed up to this point. Yeah, is that a statement that you would agree with? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think you also have, I mean, you truly have legislators today in 2020 who think Reefer Madness was a documentary. I'm not kidding. I mean, do you have people that believe that? Yeah, for, as an example, look at the legalization of hemp. There was a years-long push to legalize hemp for manufacturing, and it took a Republican legislator up in Person County who actually studied this stuff professionally. He was an actual scientist to get it passed because the Republican legislators were like, well, if you legalize hemp, 
it looks just like weed. It's the same plant. You're going to go ahead and have a bunch of weed dealers growing weed in their backyard saying, oh, no, that's just hemp. We can't allow this to happen. And the legislators said, no, you dummy. If hemp and weed cross-pollinate, you end up with a plant that doesn't have any THC in it hardly. It's not good for anything. You can't really smoke it. And it was only from him trying to impress the science of how that worked that hemp was finally allowed for manufacturing. Then we got the door opened a little bit more for the use of oil to treat seizures. You know, it's been a, a small ongoing thing where the door gets nudged just a smidge, but it's only after years of trying and having people say, look at the science, the stuff you believe just is not empirically true. And that really is probably going to be the biggest impediment to legalization in North Carolina because you have a bunch of folks that just grew up thinking stuff that is empirically not true, and it's hard as hell to change their minds. Yeah, I, I have said on numerous occasions when people have asked me, you know, what would be my best hope for legalization in North Carolina, and it has always been that the same state legislatures that we heard preach to us that we are going to follow the science during this pandemic will not turn to will not turn a blind eye now to the science that supports legalization. You know, I try, right. that's why I focus whenever I quote medical data, I always try to stick to something from like the New England Journal of Medicine or another like, you know, uh, uh, something else of note that has been mentioned during the pandemic so that you can make the argument of, well, you know, the same medical journal that you quoted when you told us to wear a mask is the same medical journal that showing all these amazing benefits, you know, of THC and CBD that would lead to legalization being a good idea. <laughs> you know, it's, yep. it's an optimistic world to live in to think that the conversation is that simple with the legislature. You know, that's why we offer the free... Uh, advocacy program that we do through our website where, you know, any citizen, regardless of, you know, race, color, orientation, or religion can sign up and get similar training that they would have to pay, you know, anywhere from 75 to $85 for, I think it's like uh, green sleeves or something like that. I, I don't remember the name of the website online that does like congressional advocacy training, but it's very similar to the same format and we don't charge for it. And then we encourage the people that have taken that to, you know, even now during the pandemic, you can set up a Zoom call with your representative. You can set up a phone call with them. You just have to know how to go through the appropriate channels to get the best return on that request. And then we also train them on how to, you know, kind of turn the conversation in the direction they need it to go without coming across as being too aggressive and actually creating an environment where the, you know, where the person will open up and talk honestly about, you know, marijuana legalization in North Carolina. And there have been some people, I will say, there have been some notes that I've looked at from calls that people have had with the, you know, current legislatures, and the conversation surprised me. You know, I do feel like we have some allies out there, but I don't think we have an ally that's strong enough to champion a bill yet. Right, right. I think that's probably true. Is there anyone that you can think of that might pick up that mantle quicker than another? <laughs> Uh, honestly, no. I, I'm sure there's some folks that will at least hear you, especially among the younger batch of legislators. But it's going to be a challenge when – I hate to say it because it's not really a, a political issue. The people that are more inclined to listen to you right now are the people who don't have the power in the chamber. So among your younger legislators, they tend to be Democrats. Republicans have a near supermajority in the uh, the House and pretty darn close in the Senate as well. 
those folks tend to be older and more stubborn and convinced that you're a pothead. So even if you could find someone who might be willing to run the ball, they're not going to get anything accomplished anytime soon, and you don't want them to burn their political capital trying to help something they can't get past when they need to focus on you know, burnishing their resume so they can get reelected. It, it really is just an insidious system the way things are set up here. And I don't think you're going to see a significant shift until other outside things happen. If Washington legalizes it, okay, North Carolina will play along because that's what the federal government has decreed. If South Carolina legalizes it, you know, Virginia has already indicated that they're going to legalize it. If South Carolina followed suit, you now have North Carolina surrounded by states where marijuana was legal. You'd suddenly see businesses in the Charlotte Rock Hill area or in the Lumberton area or north of me, you know, along the Virginia border where right. people are going into these other states to spend this money, losing that tax revenue. Then you might see like North Carolina change pace. Yeah, so it would be like the lottery theory, like, you know, when we first introduced lottery. That's exactly right. Yeah, I remember when I lived at the beach, that was always the one stop that we made. There was this one gas station that was called The Last Stop, and it was right on the border between North Carolina and Virginia, and everybody's like, all right, get your lottery tickets now, you know, and that's just how it was up until we finally got a lottery, you know, but I can remember spending Correct. a lot Correct. I, I know exactly where you, I would say I know exactly where that gas station is, too. But yeah, North yeah. Carolina was the last state in the region to not have a lottery, and it took several years after that before they got one. Now, me, again, going back to my, my philosophical leanings, I think passing the lottery when we did was still a bad idea. But the only reason it happened, a good idea or a bad idea, was because all of the other states did it first. And I think that's where we're likely to be when it comes to marijuana legalization. Now, in regards to, in regards to other places that are pushing forward with legalization, you know, when you start kind of playing that mind game where you go, what if, and then that can just kind of lead to, like, complete topics that cover a global scale without even meaning to, when I look at Mexico and Mexico talking about pushing, you know, for legalization, and I'm not saying that all of the marijuana that we get in the United States comes out of Mexico, but, let's, you know, let's be honest, and you being a criminal defense attorney can probably speak to this better than I can, you know, every, everything that I can remember, especially growing up in the 90s in the weed culture, is, you know, all the supply chains ran from Mexico, and majority of that was controlled by the cartels. You know, are, when Mexico legalizes, you know, are they just going to basically give a blazer and a tie to all the cartel members and say, guess you're legitimate businessmen now? You know, <laughs> it, it, it seems like there's going to be a step there, and I've always wondered, like, when we enter a legalized world, whether that be like on a state level or something as global as Mexico, you know, legalizing marijuana, like that's going to change the criminal world as we know it, honestly. I mean, the, the cartels right. will have, you know, the same fields, the same supply chain set up, but it's going to be taxed now. It's going to be controlled. And I feel like the violence that people usually associate with that is going to be one of those things that we look back at and it becomes a Netflix documentary 20 years from now. You know, about, like, the bloody days of the cartel and the weed industry. And I guess, like, <laughs> what role does a criminal defense attorney play in, like, a legalized world? Well, first, as to whether or not the cartels are going to take over, I wouldn't be too pessimistic about that yet. The reason why is that 
as more states legalize it for recreational use, you have folks that have tried out new methods of growing, new methods of, of crossbreeding strains and so on, that you will have domestic production that can be sold, you know, wherever. So, for example, I've got a client, not going to name him, but for a long time, he used to drive to the Houston area or down to El Paso, and that would be where he would get his supply. Get a rental car, drive to Texas, drive back with a whole bundle in the trunk. Starting about 2018, he started driving out to Colorado because the the samples that he got out there, the strains, I don't know. I, I hate to disclose this to your listeners, but I don't smoke weed. I never have. I have absolutely no experience personally with marijuana except knowing people who smoke. Whatever he got in Colorado, he liked so much that instead of going to Texas, which I'm assuming was Mexican supply coming in, he was instead getting it domestically from Denver, wherever it was he was going, and driving that back. So it just it's something where I wouldn't be too concerned about the cartels until you know we see what actually happens. As far as how a criminal attorney plays in a legalized world, the hope is I don't. I would love nothing more than to go back to what I was doing when I first started practice, doing this sort of business-related law, with my role being helping my street pharmacists go from selling on a corner to actually running bona fide dispensaries. That would be great. There's a guy out in California, he calls himself the weed lawyer, and that's just his job. He helps people set up dispensaries and weed-related businesses. That would be awesome. I would love to do that. I, you know, I was in court this morning for a case that we sat there, never had a trial. I drove for an hour to sit for an hour to then drive back for an hour for nothing. Rather than wasting that time and my client's time trying to get a case dismissed, I would love to sit in my office, bring someone in, go through a business and marketing plan, figure out what they're going to set up, and then help navigate them through the process to do it. That, that is the most amazing answer I could have hoped for to that question. Because I've always wondered that, like, you know, when you've got someone that has this long list of clients that they've spent a career protecting, that, you know, obviously, you, you know, you may have formed an emotional connection to some of their backstories, and you know that they're good people. They're just in a bad situation because of the way the laws in their state are written. I've always wondered, like, how you would be able to support them once they're no longer a criminal. And it's great that you've right. you know, thought of that or, you know, helping them to set up, you know, dispensaries and, you know, different, you know, letting them know what programs are available to them, you know, especially if they are, like, a small business owner that's also a minority you know, I'm hoping, my, my hope is that, you know, a lot of people have asked weed legal. Like, do we just, you know, drop the mic and say, like, you know, we're done, son. No, we're still here. Like, once weed becomes right. legal, that's not the end of our job. Like, we want to help the people that have been hiding in the dark this whole time learn to grow in the light. We want to be able to get them dispensaries, you know, set up everything that they need to be legitimate business owners so that they can actually be proud of their craft and proud of the state that they love and give back to their community, you know, and pay They need to work on expunging their criminal records that the government saddled them with when they were doing something that's not legal. And that's going to be a huge step into them being able to qualify for a lot of the programs that we're hoping will be made available to them when, you know, a true conversation is had about legalization in North Carolina with our state legislature. You know, that's every night when I go to sleep, that's the little dream that I tell myself. You know, it's like my little Disney moment. <laughs> I wish it was gone. 
I pass out for five hours before I have to go do another 12-hour Uber Eats shift and hope that I'll wake up to a different world where people don't have as much backwards thinking. But then I wake up to reality and realize that we're still in the middle of a global pandemic and I'm probably not going to get to eat today. <laughs> hey, man, that's, that's the perpetual fight every day. It is. And, you know, especially one of the things I've noticed with my job with Uber Eats is I, I don't leave Chapel Hill anymore, not because I don't want to, but I've had to work my schedule to where I still make the same amount of money just staying in Chapel Hill. And it's not that I don't want to drive farther out or don't have the ability to. I can't trust that I'm not going to run into some major problems if I go into Durham right now. And I right. hate having that feeling every day I go to work, especially when I see an order comes up that has like a $20 tip attached to it. But then I look at the address and I'm like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't know if I want to roll the dice on that today. And I truly feel, and this is just my opinion, I could be wrong, but I do feel like the rise in gun violence that we've seen in Durham specifically has a lot to do with the crime associated with marijuana still being illegal. Because in the middle of a global pandemic, people are stressed. You've got, you know, growers in Durham that I know a number of them myself that have been more productive during quarantine than they have any other time. And it's because they don't have anything else to do, but they still have to feed their families and the product is still in high demand, even, you know, when people aren't working. Like, people just need that, need to relax. And I feel like kind of having to amp up the process while it's still illegal has led to not all of it, but a majority of the gun violence increase that we've seen. Do you think that's far off? It's probably a contributor. Durham has a gang problem. I don't think that's really a surprise to anybody. It's gotten worse over the past three, four years. The drugs help finance the gangs. It's always been that way. It, not just weed. I mean, there, there's been – I've represented folks who sell harder stuff. You know, it's not, I'm not just a weed lawyer. But weed is probably the most common among the bulk of Durham County and city. You know, around spots like – not to cast dispersions on any particular university, but the, the wealthier university in Durham. You'll see more heroin, crack. You know, I had one guy that <laughs> baked brownies with Xanax. You know, um, that's definitely your higher end cost wise drugs in those parts of the city. But weed is definitely probably the the biggest. I mean, it's definitely the one you see charged the most, even before the recent uh, changes in the DA's office. So it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if the drug trade and limits to it are contributing to the gang violence and the gun violence you see as part of that. The idea would be if you legalized it, hopefully a lot of that would melt away because you'd be able to get these folks active, productive jobs. Whatever gang you happen to be in, help them set up a damn weed dispensary and they can all work together to run it. And then their rival gang can set up their own dispensary and y'all can see who has the better product. We're just not going to yeah. get there anytime soon. Well, that's, that's where that whole word that we spoke about earlier that begins with an H called hope comes into play. <laughs> right. You know, and, it's, <laughs> Amen. It's, and it's also moments like this. It's, you know, serious conversations, but that still have, you know, a lighthearted kind of comedic sense to them, hopefully, unless I'm coming across as dry and completely unentertaining. But the whole reason that we do this is because we need more public attention. Like, the more people that we have, the more people that we can train as citizen advocates the louder our voice will be and the easier it will be for us to be heard by the legislature 
that needs to change these laws by presenting a bill that is a realistic path to legalization in North Carolina. And the only way that we're ever going to get there sooner is by having the loudest voice in the room. And I feel like the best way that we can do that is by reaching out to as wide of an audience as possible to re-educate them and offer them tools and, you know, articles and everything that they need to kind of be like, you can come over to our side. Not only do we have cookies, they're special cookies, but we've also got <laughs> that I think you'd be interested in. You know, that's, that's the North Carolina that I'd like to live in. <laughs> but like you said, I, I, I know it's going to be a fight. It definitely is. And it's going to be one that's going to take some time. But I do feel like the louder our voice is, the easier it's going to be for us to be heard. And that's my biggest hope is that, you know, by doing the things that I do and talking to people like yourself, that will interest someone to, you know, kind of pick up, I was going to say pick up the phone, but then I forget that I'm old now, you know, that's going to take the time to go onto the website and sign up for that, you know, that citizens advocacy program. You know, that's my biggest. Right. Use, use a Google form. Exactly. You know, and I really, and I thank you for your, your candor and your honesty during this call as well. You know, it, it's always easier to talk about this topic when you don't have to kind of skirt around the issue or use, you know, your own code words that you hope are going to be the same code words the other person you're talking with is. <laughs> Without having to have that level of filter on it. You know, and I know you said that you don't smoke weed and never have yourself, but do you have any real personal relationship to cannabis through a friend or a family member or anyone besides your clients that you know has benefited from the use of cannabis? I think my brother smokes fairly regularly. I know he used to. I don't know if he still does, but that's about it. My my experience with just about anything is pretty limited. I used to have a, a joke. So once upon a time when I dropped out of college, which, you know, this is all backstory. Folks can Google me if they need the details. But I briefly worked as a lobbyist. And one of our clients was a cigar entity. It was a Cigar Association of America based out of D.C. We had a – this was back in the day before things like gifts to legislators were prohibited. What we used to do is have cigar parties once or twice a year where the Cigar Association would ship in their best cigars. Someone else would buy a bunch of alcohol. Another client would rent out a steakhouse, and we would just invite legislators, and it would just be a party. Well, I was at the time fairly young. I was only 24, and my boss was like triple my age. He'd been lobbying for ages. So he hired me because I knew technology. I knew how to, to you know, go online and post things, and I knew how to write letters to the editor and all this. He was focused on the kind of in-person communication. Well, we had one of these parties and didn't smoke, didn't really drink, I'm sitting in the back of the room with the CEO of one of our clients who also doesn't smoke or drink and was older than me, but not by much. And we both look like bumps on a log. He's cutting up, having a blast with my boss. You know, my boss is cutting up, having a blast with legislators. They're laughing. They're smoking. You know, one of the legislators stood up on a table and did a personal rendition of Gunga Din from memory. It was the, it was the bizarrest thing I've ever seen. And but that's how laws get made, you know. Well, at some point in the middle of the event, one of the legislators, who's a former speaker of the House, 
leaves to use the restroom and he sees me sitting in the back of the room with this CEO and I don't have a cigar in my hand and I'm not drinking. Um, but I, what I had was I had a Sprite that I had someone put a lime in so I could tell someone it was a vodka tonic. And he walks up and he, I didn't know this at the time, so I'm going to give you the spoiler ahead of time. My boss put him up to do this. I had no idea. He walks oh, wow. up looking beat red in the face and comes at me like, why don't you have a cigar in your hand? You work for so-and-so. I don't think I can trust you if you don't smoke a cigar. And I'm panicking because, again, I'm fairly young, and I need the job, and I'm terrified that I'm going to get fired, and I have no idea that my boss put him up to this. So there have been only a few moments in my life where I've had flashes of inspiration that have actually been beneficial to me. And this was one of them. I stopped and I looked around and all the blood drained from my face. But it dawned on me. I say, you know, Mr. So-and-so, have you ever heard the saying that in business you can have any product, good, fast, or cheap, but you can only pick two out of the three? And he pauses and he goes, yeah, I've probably heard that a time or two. I own a form, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, sir, that same rule applies to politics, except your choices are alcohol, drugs, or women. And I picked up my Sprite with a lime in it, pretending that it's you know a vodka tonic, and I gestured to him, and I said, sir, I've picked my two. And he just thought that was the funniest damn thing in the world, that, okay, I, dr I, I drink and I'm into women. It's okay that I don't do drugs. That's fine. Um, oh, so that is my, that's my background. I really have very little experience in the weed culture or anything else. It's just something that I saw friends deal with the criminal justice system. I saw clients deal with it. And the more I learned about it, the less I liked it. The more I realized this is something that is unjust. We were propping up an entire segment of the government based on nothing more than over-policing poor communities so that we can take their money in the form of court costs and use that to fund the government so that we don't have charge higher tax rates to the rich. Now, that is very true. You know, and I, I can see why that would bring a passion in you. I know it's the same passion that a lot of our listeners have. I really want to thank you for the time that you've spent with us tonight. This has been one of the most entertaining and, you know, educational interviews that I've done probably in the last three months. So I thank you so much for being as open and as honest with us as you have been. And in closing, is there anything advice-wise to any of our listeners that may be cannabis users in a state where it is still illegal? Any words of wisdom <laughs> that you, know, you feel like you can depart on them? Uh, well, a few things to keep in mind. One is that Text messages generally are admissible against you in court. So if you are arranging sales or purchases, be cognizant of that. Don't exactly. have it in your car. Uh, I'm going to go grab my Chromebook real quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't have it in your car because the smell becomes a basis to have your car searched. Even if there's nothing in there, the fact the smell remains is enough for a police officer to get a search. So if you feel compelled to transport it, ideally put it in a vacuum bag inside of another locked container in your trunk, you know, something where they, the smell doesn't escape, and the only way the police officer is going to get into it is if they get a warrant first. It's easy to get a warrant, but sometimes they just go haywire and try and search stuff. And in those cases, 
a good defense attorney can get the evidence thrown out because they searched a container without getting the warrant for it ahead of time. Um, but it really is just one of those things where you need to know that's a possibility. And they're not required to Mirandize you. Everyone assumes that because they weren't read their Miranda rights that they can't be convicted. That is wrong. You only have to be read your Miranda rights if your case is going to trial and the government wants to use something you said against you, which they don't have to do in possession cases because if you're possessing it, that is the crime. You don't have to say a word. So police will use the fact that you're not Mirandized to get you to talk because anything you say technically is not admissible, which is totally true. But if the stuff you tell them leads them to find weed or other drugs, you're screwed. So that would be my three tips. You know, Be aware of text messages, keep your weed out of your car, and know that you are not required to be Mirandized if you get arrested when you're being arrested for drugs. No, that is that that is definitely one new thing that I learned myself tonight. I will say that I, I was never aware of that, but now it also makes a lot more sense. You know, when I'm starting to think back of the interactions that I've had with officers when I've been stopped for you know just random traffic stops. You know, sometimes for no reason other than just they were doing a DUI checkpoint. You know, and I've never, even when I've been in question of something that they found, I've never had my Miranda rights read to me, and I always wondered why. So that. That answers that question. <laughs> I was like, now you know. <laughs> yes, and knowing is always half the battle. Greg, thank you so much for your time tonight. I, I really appreciate it. And again, you know, if there's if there's any hope, and we keep bringing up that H word again, you know, if there's any hope, it might not be 2021, it might not be 2023, but who knows? Maybe by 2025, we'll have some, you know, a path to real legalization in North Carolina, but. I know myself, I'm going to keep doing everything I can and encourage everyone I know that wants to have a voice in this. Each odd year is a chance, and 2021 is an odd year, and it might take more miracles than we can put together as a whole. But again, as long as we have hope, there's always a reason to keep fighting. Greg, thanks From your again. lips to God's ears, thanks. man. <laughs> well, listen, Greg, thanks again for all of your help with this, and we'll talk to you again soon, sir. I appreciate it, Chris. Take care. You too. Have a good night. Bye. And there you have it. My very first episode done with Greg Doucette. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned as much as I did talking to him. I hope that you had as much fun with this episode as I had recording it. Be sure to tune in two weeks from now. I know I said weekly before, but I mean, come on. I smoke a lot of weed, guys. You got to give me at least a little bit of grace period when it comes to scheduling. So it is going to be a bi-weekly episode. And the next episode coming out is my interview, this time done through Zoom with a better microphone setup in somewhat of a home studio. So the audio will be much better. But that interview is going to be with the very hilarious and very well connected to the legalizing cannabis movement, Mr. Ed Larson. You may know him from the Brighter Side podcast, Roundtable of Gentlemen on the LPN Network, or from the Comedy Central Friars Club roast. So be sure to listen when we drop that episode. It will be on our Patreon. If you haven't subscribed, liked, all of the things that me as a 45 white cis male, well, by male, can't really understand anymore and forget what I'm supposed to say. So I'll just say, you know what? You guys know where I am online. Figure it out and follow me because I don't remember what to ask for anymore. But I enjoy doing this and I can't wait to be with you all when you tune in to listen two weeks from now. And I'll say it once again, hold fast, North Carolina. Change is coming.